0: This is Radio Sustain, a journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment, brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. This edition of Radio Sustain is for Monday, May 7th, 2007. I'm Tyson Acker at IATP in Minneapolis. Today on the program... Author David Corton tells us how to avoid the perfect economic storm in his new book. Jim Kleinschmidt talks about sustainable biofuels. But first, Sophia Murphy explains the shortcomings of U.S. food aid.
1: from the U.S. Government Accountability Office sharply criticizes the U.S. Food Aid Program for not getting food to the world's hungry fast enough or efficiently enough. The GAO report is just the latest in the growing chorus calling for reform of the U.S. Food Aid system. To better understand what's wrong with U.S. Food Aid and how it could be improved, we talk with Sophia Murphy, Senior Advisor at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy and co-author of the report, U.S. Food Aid, Time to Get It Right.
2: Well, the T A O report actually put it nicely, to paraphrase what they said. The uh, U.S. food aid doesn't get the right food to the right people at the right time. And what that's saying is that the U.S. food aid is inefficient. Um, it's expensive, costs more than it should. Um, because it's tied to sourcing the, the food inside the United States, it's, it takes a long time to get it to where it needs to be, where it, mostly in developing countries. And it's not well targeted, which means that too often it doesn't get to people who otherwise would starve but ends up in a market, being sold or traded, bartered in some way for people who otherwise would be buying food, able to buy food from local producers. And so it's undermining local food production as well.
1: What does the international community think of U.S. food aid? Has it been criticized in other parts of the world?
2: It's heavily criticized. It's it's a difficult thing politically because the U.S. provides about half the world's food aid, and... and Not enough food aid is provided for the needs that we have today, so nobody likes to be too critical for fear that that supply might dry up. But U.S. food aid is universally criticized for having failed to modernize, I guess, over the last 10 years. Most food aid programs around the world have changed how they work and the basis on which they work, and the U.S. has not really done that. It has made very small steps, but basically remains unchanged from 50 years ago. So, for example, if you, even in an emergency, if you use some of the resources that come in to build the roads or, or improve infrastructure, then you're going to do something that down the road will help the food security in the long term. So some of that advanced planning is there. But one of the big changes has been in government programs for agriculture. The U.S. used to be, the U.S. government used to be a large owner of food. And these days it doesn't keep food stocks anymore, it's changed the way it supports U.S. agriculture, and it's buying the food, mostly from agribusinesses like Cargill or ADM. And what in that process of change, most other countries have moved away from food stocks as well, so they've started to make the cash available and said, we'll buy from whoever can give us the best price, whoever's closest to where the emergency is, and we're not going to restrict this to food from our country or to processors or shippers from our country. And the U.S. has failed to make those changes.
1: Food aid's come up a lot in the Farm Bill discussions that are going on right now. Uh, How does the Farm Bill shape the Food Aid Program?
2: Well, it's through the Farm Bill that the food aid programs, for the most part, are authorized. Most of the food aid that the U.S. provides is, is managed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture rather than U.S. AID, our development agency. And in Title Three of the Farm Bill, which deals with trade, most of these programs for food aid are authorized as well. And so the Farm Bill is the moment where you can try and make reforms, for example, to cut some of these restrictions on who handles and ships the food aid, to make changes like prohibiting monetization, which is the sale of food aid in local markets to, to generate money for development projects. So that would be why it's come up. It's also a trade issue. It's been of been a, a concern in the World Trade Organization discussions, and all of those negotiations on agricultural trade rules have also had a bearing on the Farm Bill debate in Congress.
0: Sophia Murphy is Senior Advisor at IATP. More information about Food Aid and the Farm Bill is available at tradeobservatory.org.
1: According to author David Corton, we stand at a critical defining moment for humankind. In his new book, The Great Turning, From Empire to Earth Community, Corton argues that a mounting perfect economic storm is fast approaching, bringing the unraveling of the corporate-led global economy and a dramatic restructuring of every aspect of modern life. Corton writes that we need to turn this terminal crisis into an opportunity for a new era grounded in the life-affirming cultural values shared by most of the world's people. We sat down with Corton to learn more about the ideas behind his new book.
3: The perfect economic storm um, refers to a convergence of of peak oil, climate change, global warming, and uh, a collapse of the U.S. dollar as a consequence of our overextended trade deficit. Now, what I'm saying is that we're going to see a dramatic shift in economic incentives away from the incentives that support the corporate global economy to a very different set of incentives that give the advantage to communities that are are organized to be uh, with strong local economies and particularly to be substantially self-reliant in meeting their needs for food and energy. So the the, the basic argument here is that This convergence of forces creates the imperative, as well as the opportunity, to turn away from a set of relationships that ultimately have been extraordinarily destructive of human well-being and threatening our very survival as we come up against the limits of the planet. If we let the storm play out by the dynamics of, of empire, we will play out into a last man standing competition for what remains of the world's real wealth. Uh, but we have the we have the potential, the opportunity to take a very different approach to look at it as a cooperative process of reallocating how we use the available real resources of the planet to meet human needs and create a, a better life for for everyone. And the the opportunities for reallocation are extraordinary in terms of. You know the 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 reallocation from military and prisons to healthcare care and environmental restoration from advertising budgets to education from global financial speculation to investment in uh, in local entrepreneurship and local economies uh you look at most every aspect of human life and it turns out that we have uh uh, we have an enormous resources that are being misallocated, used in destructive ways that can be turned to uh, uh, to useful purposes.
0: More information about David Corton's latest book, *The Great Turning: From Empire to Earth Community*, is available at his website, davidcorton.org. That's David K O R T E N dot o r g.
1: In the United States Midwest, a week doesn't go by without the announcement of a new ethanol plant being built. The bioeconomy based on corn is booming. But most experts believe that for biofuels to be sustainable in the long term, they must make the switch to other crops that are better for the environment and the farm economy. The new Farm Bill being written by Congress this year will have a big impact on the future of the bioeconomy. To find out more, we talk with Jim Kleinschmidt, Director of the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy's Rural Communities Program.
4: Renewable energy has always been a part of agriculture, but with the increasing growth of the biofuels industry, what we're seeing now is increasing demand for the commodity crops, such as corn and soybeans. So rather than just looking at grants and other kinds of funding for moving renewable energy ahead on farms, Renewable energy in the Farm Bill right now is really coming back to a question of feedstocks and how these will be used. So it comes back to the question of production in the first place. And farm policy and Farm Bill in particular will set up what kind of crops we grow, how much we grow, and how we grow them. So I think that's the critical piece for renewable energy now. What kind of
1: criteria should we be set for promoting sustainable renewable energy?
4: Well I think we have to start on the farm and looking at how these crops are produced. To date farm policy really hasn't been focused on what type of production has been happening but on the amount of production and it's really pushed over production of these commodity crops. But with the growth of biofuels industry where we're now using an increasing amount of corn for that, the impacts on the landscape of continuing this kind of production are clear. So if we want to get at sustainable renewable energy we have to start by looking at the sustainable cropping systems themselves, how can we shift our policies to promote sustainable crop production, not only corn and soybeans and the typical commodity crops, but the new biomass crops that people are looking for. But we have to go beyond that. I think the Farm Bill gives us an opportunity to really prioritize rural development and local ownership as well in renewable energy, and that's where we see a lot of value. What proposals
1: should Congress consider for renewable energy in the Farm Bill?
4: Well, there's a number of them, but I think the primary one is going back to looking at how we get to a sustainable feedstock supply. And if the only thing the Farm Bill does is pushes more corn and soybean production for more biofuel production from those feedstocks, then we haven't succeeded. And in fact, we may be endangering some of our environmental quality by putting higher demand on marginal lands, such as what's in the Conservation Reserve Program right now, or by taking other crops out of the system. We have a worry with the high demand for corn that what we're going to do is produce more corn on the same acres and on, on other acres that are right now being used to grow grasses and hay. And our concern is that if we move that way with the intensive kind of production system we have for corn right now that what we'll be doing is actually increasing our environmental degradation. On the other hand, if what the Farm Bill does is pushes new crops, perennial grasses, Short rotation trees and crop residue use in a sustainable way, then we actually have a way to move forward that can have a sustainable energy system at the same time as having sustainable farming on the landscape.
0: Jim Kleinschmidt is director of IETP's Rural Communities Program. More information about biofuels and the bioeconomy is available at agobservatory.org. Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lilliston. The music on the program is Tall Fiddler by Deo. I've Got a Secret by Robin Stein and Divided Beliefs by Tyson Emanuel. I'm Tyson Acker. Thanks for listening.